Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 23rd, 2020, the Georgia Out of Its Mind edition. I am David Plotz in closet in Washington, D.C. Joining me from her home in New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello. The garbage truck is pulling up outside my house at this very second. So if you hear it, that's why. Essential services being conducted by the good public servants of New Haven. I'm glad to hear it. And joining from a tent, a tent perhaps in his home, is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. Yes, it's. Um, it reminds me, sorry, the curtains pulled over me because I'm recording my audiobook in this little corner of the room where I've got the curtains basically attached to both walls. And it reminds me when I was a little kid, I used to make sheet forts. And so I'm feeling, um, feeling about seven years old. Did you used to record radio shows in your sheet forts back in the day? Uh, your mom was a broadcast yeah, journalist right. after all. You know, I didn't, but, um, but, uh, I, I used to put a fan at the end of the sheet fort. So the, the, um, sheets would fill up with air. And now, uh, I fill this tent fort up with my own hot air. Did you guys find that the world seemed a little gloomier, that people seem a little gloomier this week? It felt, for some reason, whatever adrenaline, I think, that was carrying people through the first month, even even people who are in pretty good shape and who don't have sick ones and are, you know, economically okay, the adrenaline feels like has worn off to me. I, I haven't, I, it's not been a great feeling this week. I think it goes up and down. I haven't noticed a uh, uh, linear, any linear direction of anything. I feel like it's more sort of minor yo-yoing. A secondary spike, <laughs> yeah, as it were. I, I've, um, I've been wondering what the benefit or detriment of actually keeping a watch on the uh, the fibrillations of the um, psychological and emotional barometer are um because every time i do then i spiral into thinking about well is this the right level of doom thinking and shouldn't i be constantly uh thinking about the doom of that and and the sorrow and the and the total chaos and upset in the world so i i've i've um taking a constant reading of the um of the rest of the world has been uh something that has its own perils. I totally I, agree. I think it would be better to be less informed right now that actually if you could just say like wake me up when this is over or wake me up when something actually happens that matters, but it's impossible because it feels like anything could matter. So we should we should stop the recording the right. podcast right, <laughs> right now. Everybody stop listening. The point? I think but it's <laughs> quick also, show. Thanks for listening. Bye. Right. I mean also cuz it's our job to stare right at the doom, you know. I mean um and I don't mean the physical, actually, a lot of it. I mean, the economic and the cultural and all that. I, for, for me, I think it's maybe that I had this realization this week that all the kind of, oh, this could be better than this could be optimistic. Here's a thing that could happen faster. Here's a way it couldn't couldn't go as badly as it could. All of those things have have not come to pass. Basically, everything. We're in a kind of a worst case scenario, not in terms of death. Not in terms of death. That is true. That it doesn't seem that that as many people will perish from this directly as maybe expected. But certainly everything else in terms of when life can return to life, it seems to be on the slow timeline, not the fast. And maybe that's what's gotten me depressed. Well, I think... Have we even introduced the topic? No, we haven't introduced the topics yet. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'll say this one more thing. This is an important thing. conversation. Okay. I think this is our first topic, basically. But I think part of what's happening is because the conversation about when and how to reopen parts of the country has so polarized. As just like a common sense matter, it's hard to figure out what those steps are. 
Yeah. Well, right. Which makes it hard because we're all looking for a solution and something in the drawer that will help us at least begin opening this complicated can. And everything in the drawer looks totally insufficient to the task, which is itself an existential irritant because when I've been thinking a lot about hope, real hope, real durable hope, right? Not just Panglossian foolishness or, or, you know, the motivational poster you pass on your way to the break room. But what makes durable hope is people who, even in the face of uh, overwhelming uh, uncertainty and fear, just suck it up and do the painful, slow, deliberate work to get out of that. So where do you find that? Who has it? And it it takes its first kernels in good, like solid solutions and information that begins the process of walking slowly towards the promised land. And it's when you're going out looking for that tiny little kernel and you keep finding fool's gold, um, it can be it can be frustrating. But of course, that's always what happens. So you have to keep you have to keep going on. But I totally uh, agree with what you're saying, Emily. All right. On today's GabFest, we're going to talk about the culture war over reopening the country, over immigration, over covid testing. Then are women better suited to lead during this pandemic than men. And then we'll talk to Mark Bittman. His new book is How to Eat. He's going to come talk about the politics and philosophy of food in a time of pandemic. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. So here's a question that came up this week. Are we in the middle of a COVID-19 culture war, one that could have real consequences for health and the economy. The president has taken the opportunity of the pandemic to massively restrict immigration. He did that this week. The question of reopening has taken on a partisan cast, where you have Trump leading governors pushing hardest for early openings, in particular with the governor of Georgia, who pushed to open this week. He's going to allow certain kinds of businesses to operate that are not allowed to operate in other places, although the president then uh, quickly criticized him for doing it. So, John, let, let's start with this question of reopenings. Why is why is the debate over reopenings so heated? We have protests. We have governors in Georgia and South Carolina and Florida pushing for fast movement on it. We have Bill Barr threatening to take action against states that that restrict the movement of their citizens too much. Why is it a um, become a issue of liberty, not an issue of public health? Uh, well, we don't, we don't, one of the problems is we don't really know how much of it is really an issue. Um, the Associated Press had a poll out on Wednesday night, um, and it said that only 12% uh, of the country thinks the measures have gone too far. So only 12% of the country is in support of the people who've been protesting in these various states, Michigan, Ohio, Colorado. And wasn't it only 22% of Republicans? I saw your tweet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, and even more fascinating to me is that with a president who has 90% approval rating in his own party, which is very durable, as we've seen, that inside that AP poll, only 22% of Republicans think that the measures have gone too far. So that's among Republicans. So one of the things we're trying to get a handle on is, how much do people feel, ah, this is a little, I mean, overwhelming, the polls show consistently, massively, and constantly that the that the country is very much behind the measures that have been taken so far, and they're more worried about opening up too soon than the alternative. It's just the polling is consistent on that. So where does this come from? Some of it's manufactured. Um, some of it is that 40% that we talked about many issues ago, or many uh, episodes ago, uh, of the chaos voter, the chaos person, the person who just enjoys stirring the pot. And then I think it's also negative partisanship, which is that the people who are advocating for staying in and for um, all of these strict measures tend to be from blue states, sort of nanny state virtue signaling types. So even if I might, in theory, think it's good as a matter of public health. I don't like the people who are telling me this. And so I want to kick them in the teeth. And there's a lot of genuine frustration and suffering of people who didn't have a whole bunch of money in their bank account and now are into their sixth week of not making any money and they need something to change. And they're sharing a kind of frustration we started the show with, which is everywhere I look for a solution of how to get out of this, I'm not getting good information. I'm getting more confused. 
I would just add to that there's a rural-urban divide going on, right? Where there are parts of the country where the virus, I think, does not feel present. Um, I mean, in my small city, it feels among us. Like, I know people in New Haven have it. um, And I know a lot of people work at the hospital, so I hear about it. But I can imagine being somewhere more remote where this just still feels like someone else's problem. Or even if you sympathize on a human level, you think, well, wait a second, but why can't I buy grass seed at the store? Like, how is my not being able to go to that store in my town really going to help anyone? Right. I, I want to add to that, which is, I, I mean, I think the the what the governor of Georgia is proposing to do is coming too soon. It's too, that state is not ready, but it's really important to always remember that the economic costs are health costs. We have higher stress. Our children are not getting educated. We have high unemployment. All of those are going to contribute to worse health, health outcomes for people and unhappiness in the future. They are there. It is absolutely the case. I think that the cost benefit analysis is, well, we have to endure that. We have to accept that because the immediate catastrophic outcome of allowing this thing to rampage is too great. And we would have the same thing anyway. We would still have the same amount of economic destruction anyway. But I, I think there's a, there's a failure. It has not been well explained to the public what, why the suffering is required now, why the suffering is required and why you would have it anyway, whether, or whether you let the disease rampage or you don't let the disease rampage. I- that that explanation feels like it's been inadequately done. I totally agree. I totally agree. And that is one place where a good leader, and it's what, you know, it's what FDR did with um, explaining to people, I totally see you. I mean, there's one one group of people who are going through the grief of loss or the grief of not being able to visit a loved one who's on a ventilator. And seeing that grief is important. But seeing what you described and that we've talked about before and you guys reacted to immediately, I feel, in the first show we did on this, which is the overwhelming kind of terminal illness feeling of economic uncertainty. You can't plan for the future. I mean, all of your normal rhythms of life that come from economic disruption and seeing that and understanding it and speaking it back to your citizens as a governor or as a president, really in a way that lets them feel seen is a key job of leadership that isn't being done. And then pivoting and saying, even though I see you in your suffering, the reason we have to do this, as painful as it is, is because we don't want to jumpstart our economy on the backs of a boom in mortuaries uh, or a boom in casket sales. Uh, an economy cannot, quote unquote, open if people are dying in massive numbers and the hospitals are overloaded. The failure has not been just to not explain it well, but to set up a, a framing of it in which the idea is that the economy can, quote unquote, open again when nobody has walked through exactly what that will look like, the economy is not going to open if people are nervous about going out again. And they are constantly nervous. And it's the job of leaders to make them feel more confident, which goes back to your original point in how poorly people have, have, uh, or a lot of leaders have made the case that you're making about why this is necessary and why there's hope in a future plan if we stick to what we're doing now. Right. I mean, I also feel like, John, all of the the sense of shared sacrifice and purpose that you're conveying, but that President Trump is not conveying, if I had faith in that, and, and especially if I had faith that everyone was in this together across racial divides, across where you live, right? Because one of the things that's really worrisome to me is you see the much higher um, disproportionate death rates among African Americans in particular. And then I worry at least about these comments from people who live not in the city part of their states about like, well, if you could just like wall off Pittsburgh and Philadelphia or just wall off Chicago, like that's the opposite of what we're striving for. But Trump plays into all of that. And then, of course, he brought in all this anti-immigrant xenophobia this week, like right on cue. If we had that, I think it would be easier to get the short term total shutdown that the public health folks pretty unanimously said we needed. And then you can have a more commonsensical 
less political conversation about what makes sense to open and what makes sense to keep closed. And there are specific choices about that that like are worth talking about, right? I mean, to open gyms and nail salons in Georgia seems crazy to me. I don't understand that. And I it'll be really interesting to see who shows up at those gyms. But, you know, the feed store in some rural part of Michigan, like maybe that's a different matter. Small businesses where, you know, you could have social distancing, you can have only a few people allowed into the store at once. That seems like something maybe you could imagine happening. What is it going to take to bridge that gap, to get there to be a more universal sense of agreement about what the steps are going to be required for us to live and also what, uh, you know, what public health measures measures will have to remain? Um, Is it even possible for us to have enough consensus as a society these days? Or is the partisanship so universal and Trump's willingness to make this essentially a political fight so universal that we cannot possibly get consensus? And without consensus, you can't have the collective action that's required to limit this. And therefore, we're just going to be in this state of misery for months and months and months because we never get a handle on it. Well, I think one of the, the possible routes to that, and we'll talk about this more in our second topic on, on leadership, but is the governors. Um, I mean, it's amazing to see the way in which individual governors that have taken command of the moment, even those who may, may have been sluggish at first or may not get A-plus grades from preparation or whatever, have been able to command the public space following pretty much the basic rules of leadership, taking responsibility, being dedicated to clean and clear information, showing the kind of empathy we were talking about earlier. I mean, these governors in Ohio, New York, California are getting approval ratings at levels we thought maybe no politician could get in this um, current age. So if they use the structure they build in this current moment to say, to then give clear information on how to get to the next phase. So for example, the standard appears to be that if 10% of your cases come back positive, you're doing sort of uh, okay in terms of moving into this next phase. Because you're if doing a high enough level of testing. That's well, what I mean, right? no, no. You, oh. you, well, it, it, what it means, as I understand it, is if it's at 10% or below in terms of confer- confirmation, no matter how much testing you're doing, then you're probably not missing a bunch of stuff that's out there in the rest of the in the rest of the um, of a population. If it's higher than 10% and Georgia is 23%, though there's some quibbling about whether that 23 is over the, the length of the testing that's been done, the numbers have been down more recently. But if there's 23% or over 10%, it means there's a lot out there that you're not capturing because you're not testing enough because we don't have enough tests. So in a limited testing environment where you can't test everybody, you want your number to be at 10% or lower. So if you explain to people, hey, we're at 10%, so South Carolina is 11, Florida is at 10, Ohio is at 14, you say, here's the number, here's why we feel confident that we can take these baby steps. That's our first metric, and we're going to keep focused on that. And then the next metric is testing, and here are our metrics on that. And then our next metric after that is our ability to is to contact trace and to isolate once we find people. And here's how you can judge us on whether we're doing a good job there. If you lay out those metrics and then have briefings of the kind that Cuomo's been doing, where every day you say, okay, how did we do on this grade? We said it was 10%. Now we're at 12. So I'm a little nervous. We may not go into phase three as soon as we had hoped. Then at least you're you're giving people the confidence, A, of clean information, and B, some standard that isn't constantly moving. And the governors seem to be the only voices. I mean, the federal response and the federal voices are a mess and and are a mess in real time. It doesn't have to do with what they missed, you know, back in January, what they missed in February, what they missed in March. The number of switchbacks and confusing signals and wasted time at the federal level means I I think it's just impossible to get clean information from the federal level. So David, your your route has to it seems to me come through the governors. Yeah, it's really interesting from a federalism point of view. I wrote a piece weeks ago saying like, hey, the governors can't solve this problem by themselves. They can raise hell about the failures of the federal government, but they still need help. And that's true in the sense that they sure as hell need money. And they could really use national coordination on testing and tracing on these kind of next public health phases. 
But the compacts among the governors and the ways in which they've been filling the vacuum left by Trump and I think by, you know, the public health people at the top, I would put Fauci and Burks into this category as well. And the head of HHS, Azar, and the head of the CDC, like all of them, I'm frustrated with all of them. I think it's really interesting to see these compacts. And there is a way in which some regional coordination makes a lot of sense. The other thing I really like about the benchmarks you just laid out is that they get us away from this impossible conversation of like, how many people is it okay to let die? Because that's whenever you frame a choice like that, you have to say zero. When, of course, all the time, the government decides to do things or not to do things based on the cost of saving lives. And so we need other kinds of benchmarks that allow us to make peace with the fact that some people are still going to get sick while we're in this middle phase. And I feel like that's the that's what we're groping toward in terms of figuring out what the standards are for reopening certain things versus other things um, and figuring out, you know, what what is common sense and what is overreach. So one thing I will I will give the governors in the South is I think that opening the beaches may turn out to be okay because it seems like we're learning more that the virus doesn't circulate outside effectively unless you're like slobbering all over someone or really in a pack. If that turns out to be true and it looks like, you know, for example, there wasn't a surge in Florida after those pictures of the beaches being open, opening outdoor space, opening parks may turn out to be some real relief that that people can be offered. Well- and just to be clear, even on the beaches, you have to social distance. I but, just want to make that clear. I, but I, I, I just <laughs> want to emphasize another point here, which is, yes, federalism is this mixed blessing. This is a case where federalism is a blessing, which is that actually we don't know very much about the virus. We don't know very much about transmission. We don't know very much about what steps are going to take to open and reopen. And I don't think it's a terrible thing to have different states moving at different rates and trying different things. I think that's OK. I think it's a way... It's a way of discovery. It's not as though the public health people, what they were telling us in February was so correct or what they're telling us that we know that they are right about everything. We don't. We're learning. And so the idea that you're like, okay, open the beaches. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. Let's allow water skiing in Michigan. Let's let's be a little bit creative and a little bit open to the idea that we're going to learn things and we have to try them. And we don't really know how that changes our risk profile. And that seems welcome. And I, I do not like, I think, you know, in general, the, the left such, you know, the left and right debate over here that the left has been smarter about COVID and more cautious. And that has generally been smarter, but I do think the, the, like the, the slamming of people walking on the beaches in Florida as idiots and the the kind of meme, a look at these dumb Southerners who are, you know, risking their lives to party is not helpful. I think it's allowing there, there needs to be a kind of variety in how we respond to it because we actually don't know enough yet to say we absolutely have to do this. We can't allow people to do this, this and this. We just don't know. Yeah, that that I agree. I think the one of the other irritating things, if we could banish the irritating things, um, which is uh, <laughs> my constant joy in life, is um, is then also uh, being clear about the limits of federalism. Um, it has all of the good things you say and is right in, t- in its experimental function. Although, boy, if I'm experimenting, I would like my governor not to be the one who said they discovered community spread uh, only two weeks ago when it was... Yeah. Um, and by the way, the, the the findings on asymptomatic spread, which we've known about for a long time, but just keeps getting affirmed in test after test, continues to be the case that in big numbers, in some in some places in China, 44% of the people who had the virus were asymptomatic. You know, that's a problem because people who are rushing in with saying, well, we'll just take everybody's temperature. That doesn't help if they're asymptomatic, yet they're still spreading. So I would I would prefer to have the governor who was on top of the facts from the beginning be the one taking the experimental and slightly more risky gambles in terms of using the blunt power of the federal government to get testing uh, ramped up to do, uh, you know, the Defense Production Act, all of those areas where the federal government could have done something and can do something, you know, keeping the bright line of what the federal government could be doing and not letting it all fall on federalism, which is I know it was just not what you were trying to do, David, but I think is is one of the other things to keep top of mind because the political conversation, you know, seeks to fuzzy all this up. 
GapFest listeners, we have a Slate Plus bonus segment today, as on every episode of the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. Today, we're going to talk about our all-time reading list. Like, what are the things you must read in in the Dickerson canon, the Bazelon canon, and the Plots canon? So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus today to get that. And I just want to emphasize... Uh, I know there are a lot of uh, media companies that are asking for your support right now, and a lot of other people are asking for your support, and I know that your finances might be strained at this time. If you're in a position to support Slate, I would encourage you, ask you to consider becoming a member of Slate Plus. There's amazing content, and it allows you to support the journalism that Slate does every day, which is smart and important and a necessary part of of the information flow that we need to get through this crisis together. So if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can sign up. Thanks. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is striking how many of the most effective leaders of this crisis have been women. Jacinda Ardern. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. I've never seen it. I've only read it. Ardern. I'm going to say Ardern. In New Zealand has been one of the most effective at quashing the outbreak and maintaining public support for her methods of quashing the outbreak. Angela Merkel in Germany, once a chemist, has been much praised both for her scientific and her humane approach. In Norway, Denmark, and Iceland, we have women heading the governments, and all of those countries have been overperforming in the pandemic. So I don't want to get essentialist. Yes, don't get essentialist. I don't want to get essentialist. If you do, I will chide you. I don't want to get essentialist. <laughs> well, but, but everybody thinks you're going to, so Emily jump in. I should note, by the way, John Dickerson now sounds different. His We had a recording problem in the first segment, but his recorder is now in good shape, so that's why he sounds you, different. Uh, the recording problem was user error, so sorry. I was trying to protect David you, was covering for you. I was covering for you, man. Because of a malfunctioning finger that didn't press a button. A, malfunction, um, a malfunctioning man is what happened. That's right, exactly. Now we see the, now we see the stupidity inherent in the system. So, Emily, alright, so let's go Emily, let's get to, so is there anything that one can say that 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 defines a female leadership style that makes you know that makes it relevant to the pandemic? Is there a female leadership style that any of these women represent that is important to note, or is it different from a male leadership style, or is this just a person by person thing? I mean, I have some theories, but I, I think you there's go first. some evidence that women, when they're at the head of government, have a more participatorial consensus building strategy for how to lead. And at a moment like this, where there's so much uncertainty and you have to be taking in a lot of information and then making a plan, that does seem like an advantage, um, right? Because you're not just marching forward. You're having to absorb and digest and think through these difficult choices. 
And then I think the other possible um, advantage here is about uh, persuasion. So are you leading by fear and by banging people's heads together? Or are you leading by trying to convince people? And look, a man or a woman or anyone of any gender composition could do the things as a leader that John outlined in the first segment. There's no reason that that should be women who are doing it. But it is striking that we are seeing um, this kind of persuasive style of leadership. And, you know, look, as a Jewish person, I never would have said this. But when I was watching some video of Merkel last week, like explain the reproduction um, possible numbers for COVID and talk about getting it down to an R of one very clearly, I thought, oh my God, like that country is going to figure this shit out. That country is going to send its kids back to school in May. And I bet they're going to do it safely. Why as a Jewish person did you say that? Are because you... of the Nazis, remember I that? know, but it's that's like 80 years ago. It's it's a totally different country. It's, what a it weird, has stuck with me. What a Sorry. weird thing to say. Really? That's, That's so interesting. I say. feel like many Jews have that instinctual worry about like actually moving to Germany. Um, Can I go ahead, John? Yeah. Oh, so on the one hand, in some of the writing about this, you have the male leadership style being defined by Donald Trump and Mike Pence, who are not representative of um, <laughs> the male species uh, and whose leadership style is uh, if you I mean, it feels like what you've got is there are a certain set of things that leaders do um, and the women in this case just happen to be doing them better. Men could do them better, just aren't as many examples of them. And then there are, though, that th those natural things that, Emily, you put your finger on, which I think are important to recognize the the idea of if you think of leadership as something that requires also followership. In other words, Eisenhower said, you don't lead by hitting people over the head. That's assault, not leadership. If you, if you ascribe to the view that I think is right, that women leaders tend to be more consensus-based, more unity-based, more persuasive, that's the prerequisite for actually leading, as opposed to the weird sometimes image of leadership that you just bark a bunch of orders. And then you have this other thing, which is in America, the kind of John Wayne version of leadership has stuck in the public consciousness in some way. The stock market, which is seen as a way to measure the success of a presidential leader, is kind of driven by all of the characteristics that may actually not be necessary for good leadership, but are performative. And then you have a president right now who keeps referring to his ratings, which are totally dis disconnected from whether he's actually leading anybody. The polls would suggest that he's not, that he's actually doing worse as a leader than he normally does. And he's doing drastically worse than the governors who are doing all the things that are being ascribed to women leaders and that represent that more general kind of successful leadership playbook. All right. I have so many thoughts on this. First of all, First of all, I totally agree with your guys' point about uh, the, the consensus building. I think to be a woman who's successful in politics in almost any country, you have to be calm and you have to you have to be a consensus builder. And you also have you. It's very unsafe to show anger and to show too much kind of warlike or belligerent forcefulness or and bluster. And so this is a then this is a time when I think people are appreciating a calmness, a reasonableness uh, because it's it's necessary to get through this one part of what we're describing as female leadership is just like humanity which is that a lot of these women are showing kind of empathy in in the face of a of a terrible tragedy and they are displaying empathy and that it is not that women display empathy or men display empathy it's like they you know, anyone can display empathy. It just happens that the women who are who are leading these countries are displaying empathy and the men, as I'm going to get to in a second, don't. And I think I actually think what we have is not a we, we don't have a kind of blossoming of great women leaders. I think what we have is a particularly terrible crop of male leaders. I also want to say that all of the countries that we've talked about in New Zealand, those countries in northern Europe have very strong social trust, very strong safety nets. And they're very cooperative political systems relative to other countries. And that's one reason why women are able to get elected. Women tend not to get elected in countries that don't have such sorts of political systems. And so I think they these women certainly are displaying excellent leadership, but they also come from political systems which are generally functioning pretty well. 
now I want to make the main point I want to make, which is I do not think, as I said, I don't think that this is an incredible crop of women leaders, although, you know, Angela Merkel, good, great work. I think we have a huge amount of macho bluster horror show in the male leadership globally these days. And you just think about Trump, Boris Johnson, Bolsonaro in Brazil, AMLO in Mexico, Erdogan, Putin, MBS, uh, Modi in India, Xi Jinping, the, the, the kind of maleocracy of Iran. It is a it is a bunch there because of other forces that have been going on in global politics. We have elected or not elected in some cases, seized power across the world. Men who are particularly at this moment, populist, macho, blustering, and they are just doing very badly. That would be my diagnosis. So just to give the men their due, Macron seems like he's been okay. Um, And the leaders in Spain and Italy, whose name are not on the tip of my tongue, sorry, I'm failing that test, they both screwed up early on, but seem to have gained more of a foothold and more of a sense of social solidarity since then. And then, I mean, this just takes us back to our conversation about American governors. I mean, I think you can have lots of criticism of Andrew Cuomo's failure to shut down New York earlier. When you look at all the people dying in New York, you can see the cost of that. However, I think he really does channel empathy successfully. And I would say that also about Larry Hogan in Maryland when I've watched him on TV or Jay Inslee in Washington. Like there are figures in in our federalist system who are male, who are accomplishing. And, and who's the probably the worst governor from that standpoint is the a worst. woman. South Dakota's governor. Christina oh, Hull. yeah. She's been very bad. Is, and so I don't point. think again, I don't think this is a I don't think. Right. That's a male female. It's sort of like what part of the political system where where you what how how the political class in your state functions, your country functions and these greater global forces, which are encouraging, I think it are encouraging a really bad group of leader. Bibi Netanyahu built a really bad group of of macho asshole leaders are at the top of a lot of countries right now. Orban and Hungary, all countries that have responded very badly to this. I would add Mike DeWine to that list of of leaders. And on Thursday morning, he did something that when I was thinking about this, we started the conversation recognizing that being a centralist here doesn't help anybody. But I wonder uh, where the act of taking responsibility falls on the gender question. Again, that question may itself be uh, incorrect and improper. But Cuomo, as, as Emily said, was, you know, had a moment where he said, look, if you're unhappy with what's happening, blame me. It's my fault. It's not the mayor. It's not anybody else. It's my fault. Uh, not my fault, but I'm the one who's responsible. And and Mike DeWine said, any complaints about the policy of this administration need to be directed at me. I'm the office holder. I appointed the director. Ultimately, I am responsible for the decisions in regard to the coronavirus. The buck stops with me. The In a sense, you could imagine, you could see that as a sort of captain goes down with the ship kind of male macho trope. Uh, and um, define it that way. On the other hand, just as a general non-gendered question of leadership, it has an incredibly powerful force within both the public who thinks, okay, somebody's on the case. They're willing to put all their political chips on their being responsible here. And that's an act of of selflessness. And and that's a good thing to see in terms of uh, uh, giving the public confidence. But it also has a powerful force within an organization because it lets everybody know, don't spend any of your time on excuse making, blaming, spin or anything else. We've put our reputation on whether we can solve this. So get to solving it. And in in bureaucracies, that tends to be powerful because it gets people to move in bureaucracies that tend to be sometimes not as finely tuned as we might want. So the question is, how does that fit in the context of this uh, male or female or or does it not? Emily, again, I I'm just going to play essentialist for a moment here. So just allow me to play. You can play an essentialist on TV. It's been done. Whack it down. Is there anything to the fact that this this is a crisis, it's, at least in terms of the lockdown piece of it, that that it seems that um, the these leaders we talked about at the beginning are doing well with, that is about issues that are seen as women issue, women's issues, namely the home, the care of the family, the care of the sick, and that their women are trusted to take care of that and and their judgment is trusted and that allows them to 
be effective leaders. Could there be anything in that? No, I don't really think that's what's going on because this is like just such an overwhelming crisis and the economic aspects of it are just as important as the public health aspects. And that is not naturally a sphere in which women are trusted. I think it it's more about the other issues you are raising. I have to say, I have to ask you guys, this raises for me the question, if you were running this playbook right now, this set of world events and Hillary Clinton were president, how different would it be? I Can I take that first, John? Then you'll give it a long answer informed by history. <laughs> uh, sure. I would say it is undoubtedly the case that the federal leadership and the organization around public health and the messaging and the planning would be vastly better, infinitely better. And there would be a huge difference. And we, I think we have something much more like what we're seeing in in. Germany than what we're seeing uh, here in the United States. That said, I also think that our cult, po- political culture is so poisonous that on one big, in one big area, we, it would be much worse, which is that I do not think that a Republican Congress and a Republican Senate of the sort we have now would have gone for the massive fiscal rescue that we're seeing this Republican Congress being willing to tolerate because President Trump wants it and because they all know that their constituents need it. I don't I do not believe that we would have had nearly the economic intervention that we've had, which still probably won't be enough to stop things, but uh, certainly is is a ne- was a necessary lifesaver to be thrown to small businesses and the unemployed. I, I think there are uh, three ways to look at it, whether it's Hillary Clinton or just anybody else who runs a more traditional presidency. There's on the first broadest issue is just vision. Do you look at the presidency as a job where there are surprising, big, high stakes things that can come out of nowhere and surprise you? That's the way you should look at the job. And it's more likely that another kind of administration would have come in and said, you know, this job has to deal with big, complicated, ugly, hairy things. So let's make sure we're staffed up to a full level, staffed up with people who believe in the idea that there are some problems that can only be solved through collective national government responses, and let's make sure those are staffed with people who are competent and know how to run things. Secondly, there would have been a vision towards relationships uh, with Congress that would have respected that idea, which is that in emergencies, we're going to need to work together with each other. So let's not burn the ships to the point where we are absolutely incapable of even being in the same room, even though we might not get anything done in the interim period, we'll retain some level of fellow feeling. So that would have been at the management and kind of vision level before you ever heard anything about pandemic or anything. And I think that would have been um, in a more traditional presidency, those would have been stronger, um, given you a stronger foundation to start. Then there's the question of whether another kind of administration would have been able to heed all of the warnings, the, the Homeland Security warnings, the economist warnings, the epidemiologist warnings, who said long before we ever heard the word Wuhan, that a pandemic could cause us a big, huge national problem. Would another kind of administration have really focused on that? You would hope that that would be the case. I think that we need a little more humility in thinking about how overwhelmed and overburdened administrations are, even when they're working at their best. So let's say they were super hyper-focused on cyber warfare, which is as much of a danger to us as a pandemic would be. And, you know, they just happen to get surprised by the pandemic and not the cyber warfare. You could imagine a situation in which they, the reverse were true. They were on, they were set, they were N95 masks in everybody's drawer, and then everybody got hit by a cyber attack. So... Who knows? You would imagine and hope that an administration would be better uh, than this one, but I think you'd, it, that that's harder to predict. And then there's finally the response in the moment, which is both the communication skills that we've been talking about in terms of the ones that are being displayed by Republican and Democratic uh, governors and world leaders that give people a sense of confidence, that give them what they need. You would imagine you would see a far better response in that regard. And then also just... Um, because you had set up a structure of managing a White House that had some stability and operating tempo that preceded the emergency, you would imagine that in-the-moment responses would have less of the um, opportunity cost that we have here, the time-wasting, the the uh, the wasted effort on solutions that are um, 
totally improvisational rather than durable. Um, so in the moment, you would have expected somebody who cared more about having clean lines of management and organization being able to handle this in a, in the in a better way than the, the the totally chaotic response that has been here so far. Yeah, I may be romanticizing this, and now I'm leaving gender behind. But I actually feel like George W. <laughs> Like George W., first of all, you know, he did the things that I really didn't like about him and thought he was terrible on. I'm not sure how relevant they would be to a pandemic, right? I mean, when you remember him coming out of 9-11 and saying we're not at war with Islam, like really. Katrina, Katrina, Katrina. Shoot. Katrina. Well, wait, but wait, but wait. I mean, finish but, your thought. What? I mean, I, he would be better than the current president. But, well, I was I just mean, going for the notion of like basic human decency about course. unity. Tons. But Katrina, of it. a lot of it. He has a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I think the Katrina picture is a little bit more uh, complicated. I mean, he was already had already basically lost the public relations war over the war itself, and so Katrina landed in a moment that was different from where it would have if it had been if it had happened in you know August of 2001 and secondly his commitment to Katrina that lasted long after the cameras left gets higher marks obviously than his initial response the way people are giving say Andrew Cuomo an average grade where he gets um poor marks for missing the beginning but then you know improves over time we are now joined by Mark Bittman. Mark is the author of a whole bunch of books that I'm sure you have, How to Cook Everything, How to Cook Everything Vegetarian, which is one of my staple cookbooks, Vegan Before Six. He was the minimalist. If you have read about food in the past 30, 40 years, I don't even know how many years you have read Mark or heard him talk about it or seen him on TV. He has a new book out with David Katz, How to Eat All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. So we're going to talk to Mark about that and about sort of what it means to eat and think about food in this strange moment we're in. Welcome, Mark. Nice to be here. In some sense, this is a terrible time for a new book to come out. On the other hand, if you have a new book about food, it's also maybe a great time because people are thinking about food a lot. Uh, some people are thinking about food because they don't have enough of it, because their uh, supplies are in danger because they don't have enough money, because their supermarket isn't as well stocked as they hope it is going to be, because they feel that shopping is precarious and they don't want to risk it. Uh, food is also a great source of joy right now, because with everything else so precarious, the act of cooking and sharing a meal with loved ones, those of us who are fortunate enough to do that, is a great luxury. So I am interested in how you are thinking about some of those questions. It's important to cook. I've been saying this for it is 40 years, and I've been saying it for 30 of them, I think. It's not important that everybody cook, but it's important that many of us cook, and um, people are seeing that now. It, it's unfortunate that it took this, but it's unfortunate that it took this for us to see a lot of things, like broken government and a society that has lost its way and, and maltreatment of some huge number of, huge percentage of our population, and so on. So... It's teaching us all a lot about many different things. We've been cooking a lot at our house. And my favorite thing about it is that it allows for some amount of just um, pure, virtuous feeling distraction and also discovery. So we've been trying new recipes. My husband, who's wanted to bake bread for a long time but never really did it, is baking bread. He doesn't. He's not part of the whole sourdough starter crowd yet, but um, we just got... We'll convert him. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to ask you what recommendations you have. I also have two teenagers at home, one of whom has just decided that he wants as much as possible to be a vegetarian, um, which is a little bit of a challenge for us. Not a huge challenge, but something of a challenge. And I wonder if you have some thoughts about if you're at a moment where you have more time to think about cooking and you want things that feel healthy, but also like a step off of your beaten path where how to how to go about doing that. I want to say first that cooking for me as a as a sort of easily distracted person with many different interests, cooking was a way to put a, a finite end to my day that allowed me to then feel like I was part of, I mean, my kids are grown, feel like I was part of a family, a real active 
nourisher in that family. And I liked that feeling. And I liked that cooking gave you a a result that you could eat. And I always maintained that, or I've long maintained that most home-cooked food is better than most restaurant food. It's better for people who profit from selling food if we don't know how simple it all is. Because a carrot is never going to be as profitable as a as a vegetable chip um, or as something made from carrots that's that's keto friendly or paleo friendly. I think now the challenge the challenge for me has been it is hard to get some ingredients that I'm used to getting. So it I think my single most important piece of advice is learn to cook out of a well-stocked pantry. And um, I can give an example. It might be a little more complicated than it needs to be. But I made a sort of Korean-style stew the other night that had in it tofu and chilies and rice and dried shrimp and seaweed and onions and celery and carrots. The point is, if you have the stuff that you need in your pantry and it can be built up over a long period of time, you can cook really just about anything. And then if you're lucky enough to have fresh vegetables, fresh fish, fresh meat, whatever, great, so much the better. But uh, it also speaks to the vegetarian thing. I mean, if you have a load of stuff, the fresh stuff is a bonus in a way. So, Mark, how would you start from zero if you wouldn't know what to do with a dried shrimp if it hit you in the head? <laughs> give, give instructions to some of those people who, who want to do better. Well, I, a cookbook helps. I mean, the Internet is, is good for finding recipes, but it's not reliable for finding good recipes. So a cookbook that you trust you know, I don't, I don't want to be too self-promotional. I'm going to jump so in I'll and recommend there. How to Cook Everything, <laughs> which is a food bible in my house. If you don't have it, I really recommend it. So, for many, many people who are now homebound for the first time in a long time, if not ever, we have a lot of time on our hands. Those of us who are not so-called essential workers, I mean, we're doing spending no time doing transportation for one thing. And so there is time and there is a need to eat. And why not eat the stuff that you want to eat? And that's where it's best to start to learn how to cook is to say, oh, well, that Korean stew sounds really good. Or I want minestrone. Or I've always been a fan of roast pork. I mean, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Try that and um, and build from there. I mean, cooking is not hard, but... Uh, to expect to be really good at it from the get-go is like expecting to be really good at tennis from the get-go. It's, it's not going to happen. So um, allow for some mistakes and allow for things to take a while and and ignore the advice that says, well, you need knife skills or you need to really understand how to make uh, the best dashi or whatever. You just need to like focus on the matter at hand and get it done. If you can't dice an onion perfectly, well, neither can I. So it's just not that important. Has there been a moment in America's history where people actually went and ate more sensibly? Was it when the first food pyramid came out, even if we don't agree with what that was in that first food? Have we ever gone in the right direction as a country? Twice. And it's called World War I and World War II. And both times, food was either rationed or lobbied that we eat a more plant-based diet, that we eat less sugar, that we eat less meat. And in both instances, the indicators of public health went in the right direction. So this wasn't a controlled experiment, obviously, but it was, uh, you don't need to eat sugar. We want to send meat to the troops, who, by the way, came back with clogged arteries, but okay. (laughs) It's important for you to start a a victory garden. World War II, 40% of our vegetables came from our own gardens and so on. And in both wars, public health indicators or health indicators went in the right direction. So um, that's way more effective than saying, here's how you ought to eat. And by the way, the pyramid and my plate were and are both deeply flawed. More effective than that is saying, 
We're going to put a cap on the amount of sugar you can eat. We're going to produce less meat. We're going to make available more vegetables and so on. I mean, we are another of these bizarre benefits of of the virus is that we're seeing that activist government working in public interest can have positive effects. Sadly, the federal government is barely a part of that picture, but people are recognizing this, I think. Mark Bittman is the author of How to Eat, the co-author of How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered, and of course, How to Cook Everything, which you should get if you still need ideas for how to cook during pandemic. Mark, thanks for joining us. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for having me. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you, uh, your home, your home hooch that you've been making, because that's an, that's an activity uh, when you're filling up a glass of homemade Bazelon moonshine. Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? I finally um, got to find out the ending of a story I was following very closely this week when the Supreme Court ruled by a vote of six to three that non-unanimous juries are unconstitutional. This was a um, practice in Louisiana and Oregon of convicting people with split jury verdicts that I wrote about in the winter. I wrote about some people who were innocent and the jurors who voted against their convictions because they had doubts about these people's guilt that were correct, but that they couldn't get the rest of the jury to agree. It was an interesting six to three split. Um, In dissent was Justice Kagan, along with um, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. The majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch has a lot of originalism in it, in the sense that it goes back to what the right to trial by jury meant in the Sixth Amendment. It came out of a tradition in um, Great Britain of unanimous juries. So there are some historical thinking going on there. And then there is this interesting question of like what this means for the tens of thousands of people who are in prison right now based on split jury verdicts. Their cases are not directly at issue in this decision, which was a case called Ramos, because the people who sued were the people whose cases were on direct appeal. There are only about 30 of them. But the two sides really go at this question of whether all of these other convictions need to be revisited. That's a future case, but it will be a really interesting one. And it was, I would say, a a small but important bright spot for the Supreme Court's jurisprudence to recognize that in every state, the right to trial by jury means that you can only be convicted by a unanimous jury. You know, it's funny. I read the headlines, and I think I even read a tweet you may have sent about this, Emily, and I reached the completely opposite conclusion. I totally misunderstood it. I thought they had, I thought they'd upheld it. Oh uh, no! I hope my tweet wasn't. I wrong. think your tweet was probably correct. I think it was one of these things which is non-unanimous. Is yeah, one of yeah. I know. Weirdly, I know. almost double negative kinds totally, of totally. I know. Yes, that is a challenge with this. Exactly. Uh, John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Uh, my chatter is about a piece that Nick Thompson wrote in Wired about um, it's about running and his um, how he improved his time. But it's really also about his father and about, uh, well, a whole just a whole bunch of other stuff. It's really just a great little um, it's not little. It's a, it's um, I, I say that only because I sent it to my son, who's recently taken up running during this period, going out before anybody else goes out to go running. And so it's about father and son. And um, anyway, it's a great piece. So it's in Wired by Nick Thompson. It's called, um, to run my best marathon at age 44, I had to outrun my past. The last time I saw Nick, I was out running and he literally like flew up to me, stopped for a second, said hello very sweetly, and then flew by me. So... I, I can testify that he is running fast. He's yeah, stunning I mean, I, fast. Oh my god! He, I think his his. Uh, I I I can't remember what I ran um, in high school, but essentially his average pace in a marathon is pretty much what I ran a single mile in in high school. Yeah, he's running like a. I mean, it's well under well sub three marathon, but it's 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 yeah. A he was lot. trying to get to like two forty four or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, I have two quick chatters. Um, first is a request. So we're desperate. Like so many parents, we are desperate about the summer. They're getting through school and this distance learning school has been, you know, it's been bad, but at least it gives the kids something to do for some of the day in summer. None of it, 
all of summer is wiped out. The time that you could travel, no travel, go hang out at the pool, can't go hang out at the pool, go work in the mall, can't go work in the mall, go to camp, can't go to camp. There is none of the structure that is set up for the American summer remains. And how are we going to get through these three months? I need to know. I need to know. We need to know. So could you please send us your ideas? Tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest or email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com with your ideas. And we'll talk about that on a future episode about how to survive the summer as parents. My, hey, can, can I can I add one thing to the request that's going to sound um well, whatever. It, um, it's also, there are a lot of kids that want to like muck in and help out and do something useful. And that, that's For also, sure. you know, yeah. and, and that's also really hard to find. Um, and is there any way, you know, they can do that from home? They can deliver food uh, if they have cars. I mean, if yeah. that's a thing, like anyway, in New York, that might be hard. That's, what, right. that's the we're, thing we're my kids to... have found to do that is the most satisfying to them. Yeah, we're trying to figure that out here in yeah. terms of that. But yeah. My other chatter is just a quick uh, Twitter thread from GabFest. I don't know if, he, if he's ever been a GabFest guest, but certainly GabFest ally, Jody Avergan. It's just a hilarious Twitter thread about toilet training your cat and the role that Charlie Mingus. Wait, the jazz, the jazz pianist Charlie Mingus? Yes, the jazz pianist Charlie Mingus. Huh, okay. He toilet trained his cat and he had a book that he would send out to people about toilet training his cats. It's very, very funny. I I didn't know any of it. Hey, since you're bringing up Jody Avergan, he has a great new podcast out called This Day in Esoteric Political History, which once you're finished listening to Whistle Stop, all of the back <laughs> episodes, then you should try that one. Even more esoteric right. than Whistle Stop. Right. Listeners, you've continued to ply us with excellent listener chatter during pandemic this week, you tweeted to us at Slate Gabfest a number of super interesting kinds of stories, some very cheerful, some gloomy. Several of you sent that George Packer story, a number of people have been talking about in the Atlantic. But I want to call it a tweet from Jeff Weitzel. And Jeff points to a Twitter thread from NPR's Tim Mack about what happened in 1918 in San Francisco when people were required to wear masks in shared public spaces. And it's an amazing Twitter thread just about the strange history of mask wearing in San Francisco, where everyone had to wear masks. The mayor was fined by his own police chief for not wearing a mask. Uh, but then there was a mask rebellion. There was the Anti-Mask League of 1919 in response to the masking orders of 1918, or is it maybe the Anti-Masking League of 1919? Anyway, uh, I strongly recommend this Twitter thread from Tim Mack that Jeff Weitzel sent us. If you enjoyed GabFest, please subscribe. You'll get new episodes the second they're published. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. We are engineering ourselves, so all sound mistakes are our own fault john <laughs> dickerson you can follow us on twitter at ad gabfest tweet chatter to us there for emily and john i'm david plotz thank you for listening we hope you're safe and healthy and surviving okay we'll talk to you next week hello slate plus how are you Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. We appreciate it. As I said during the show, this is a really critical time for Slate. They're trying to continue to do all the great work they're doing. And Slate Plus membership is an amazing way to, for you to support Slate. And it's essential for Slate to thank you for being a member. We were asked by a listener some months ago for our all-time reading list, our greatest hits, what it is we absolutely, absolutely need, our must-reads, the GabFest canon. So let's do it. I've got, I got like 20 things on my list. Let's just be fast. Emily, oh, go first. Oh, we're doing speed rounds. Okay. Wait, can I just ask a uh, preliminary question, which is, um, are we saying uh, in these troubling times or do we mean on a sunny no, it's day a canon. the future spools out ahead of it's us? It's the canon, okay. man. It's what, what people have to read. Sunny times, dark times, whatever it is. All right.
All right, I'm going to start. I, I went women heavy. I'm sure everyone's going to be shocked by that. I'm going to start with kind of what I think of as two different. Well, I'll just. So I'm going to start with George Eliot. I would start with Middlemarch, but also Daniel Deronda and especially The Mill and the Floss. On the Floss. Um, the Mill on the Floss. The Mill on the Floss. Thank you, David. Um, or do you want to. Let's pass it around and keep going and then we can. Um, yeah. Oh. Oh, so I have to inherit because I interrupted you. I have to inherit. Yeah, okay. you inherit. <laughs> okay, so some I, I'm gonna do f- f- a few in in the I have fiction category, kids category, and nonfiction category. So fiction, um, his dark materials, the Philip Pullman series, Pride and Prejudice, Sacred Hunger by Barry Unsworth, an amazing novel about slavery. Uh, in apocalyptic, The Road and Station Eleven, both are books that are. I think everyone should read The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler is this 19th century novel that reads like it was written in the 1930s. It is amazing. It's just such a surprising, strange book. It's a book that was it's as though it's it's literally like it's though it was a mistake. It was some kind of act of time travel. That's a few. Go, John. Gosh, I'm so overwhelmed by the question here because there are some books um, I don't know whether they would be... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.